Greetings and welcome to Inside the Master's Studio, a behind-the-screens look into the art of GMing. This week we're joined by Brian Crenshaw. Howdy, Eric. I'd like to start from the very beginning. How did you first get involved with tabletop RPGs? That that goes back a long way. I uh, I grew up on some of those old Rankin Bass cartoons. I don't know if you remember those uh, back in the 70s and 80s. I wasn't born yet when they came out, but I watched a lot of that. I thought it was pretty much the coolest thing ever. And, you know, when you're really little, you're just playing pretend and stuff. You get older, people are too cool for that anymore. So you just kind of bring it indoors. Uh, essentially, I've been doing this sort of thing since before I was really old enough to get through the rule book. What was the first opportunity you had to actually role play using a system that had been pre-made? Well, I remember there was a board game called Dragon Strike that they kept at my elementary school for some reason. And we'd bust that out on rainy days. And, and I did a little bit of that. As far as uh, like a, an actual system, uh, I was I was making my own before I had the patience to really figure out Dungeons & Dragons. So I'd say uh, probably high school is, is when I started having systems with cohesive rule sets and it was more than just cooperative storytelling in a circle. Do you remember your first ongoing character that you played as? I've pretty much been a, you know, DM since the beginning. There were a couple of, of uh, online writing forums and things where, you know, you, but as far as like a tabletop game, I've, I've never had a running character for very long that I can think of. Did you being the GM come as a result of you wanting to tell a story or just being the only one who was willing to tell the story? It was pretty much the first one all the way. I always had different ideas about what I wanted to do and what I wanted to happen in a given game. And uh, over the years, I'd sort of gathered a uh, retinue of people who decided that that was fun and would follow me around, figure out, you know, okay, <laughs> what's he going to cook up today? And then when we got a little bit older, I'd been doing it for so long, it was just sort of the natural order of things. What is the longest ongoing campaign that you've been in charge of? I'd say six years. Um, we've had uh, my core gaming group, the people that I've been playing with the longest, have been with me for... I've known them longer than this, but we, we adopted a system that I made back 12 years ago. And we just, after six years, decided these characters have been around a long time. <laughs> if we keep them around much longer, we'll know that everybody's too sentimental for anything really bad to happen to them. So I suppose the answer, the short answer, six years. I hear you have been developing a system for you to use. Was that going back to the beginning where you just weren't familiar with any system, so you designed your own? Or is this you trying to make up for the shortcomings of other systems? Uh, both, kind of. Uh, I, I thought Dungeons & Dragons was pretty much the coolest thing ever, but I thought that at an age where I just really didn't have the attention span to get through. Uh, I mean, I had it back when it was TSR, you know, second edition. They, they'd sell it in a, as a board game with a little rules pamphlet almost. And, and even that was a little much for how old I was at the time. Uh, and I just thought, this is such a cool idea. Why do I have to do homework to, to get to the game? And as I got older, my patience, you know, got better, but the rule books got longer. 
So I, I just always, it was always easier to make my own system on the fly. And, uh, as for the, as for survive the night, which is the system that's really getting pushed right now with, uh, my friends and everybody in their circles. I mean, we're expanding the, the audience very quickly. It's basically an outgrowth of the simplicity of the rule set that I made for my friends. And it was so flexible. We figured out pretty quickly that it could be used to tell a story other than swords and dragons and, you know, that whole shtick. So, uh, yeah, I mean, pretty, pretty much both answers. Uh, I love these kinds of games and I thought that there should be fewer barriers to entry. Now is survive the night, the system, or is that the campaign name? Uh, that is the system. Uh, it's as far as campaigns, it's comprised of a series of one shot games. Uh, the survival rate of the party is very low. Uh, generally the way that it works is, uh, everybody picks up a character. Uh, you can make one. Uh, it comes with a handful of pre-made characters as well. Basically everybody's sort of an archetype you might see in a horror movie. And, uh, depending on how exacting the narrator is, we've had uh, total party kills and we've had about 50% survival as well, somewhere in that range. But, uh, it wouldn't make a very rewarding campaign after you were down to, you know, one guy who'd survived more than two games. Is this designed to be run in a specific setting or designed to be run in any setting? It can be run in, I mean, it's proven flexible. Uh, right now the game is still, I wouldn't say in its infancy. Uh, it got started four years ago uh, as sort of a holiday gimmick. We would adapt an older system I'd made to a modern timeline and say, okay, you know, you're in a dark area, give them the whole scenario set up. And it just really took off. It did really well. People outside of our group who heard about it wanted to play. And uh, just for, for simplicity's sake, for, for my schedule, we kept it pretty limited. Now it's been done several times. Moving forward, we could definitely branch out into like other timelines and other technological scenarios. Right now we've tried sci-fi once, but most of them are set in modern day. You mentioned having an audience. Have you done this in a podcast form or some other form to bring other viewers in? Well, the, the decision to see how well it might market is fairly recent. I mean, I've known for a while that I wanted to do it, uh, but it was recommended to me that we should try to bring it to Origins. And so we invited, you know, anybody who wanted to sign up for it there, and, and it received a very positive, uh, it received very positive reception there. And then since then, I mean, people have been inviting their girlfriends to sessions. Uh, I've got a couple of <laughs> parents who are signed up for the next time I'm free. And I have not uh, put any of it online yet. I think I'm planning to remedy that. But we're just not quite there yet. There's a few other things I need to take care of first. Have other people in your group or other people at large been given the chance to run the game just to see how it runs when somebody else is at the helm? Uh, yes, sir. Yeah. Recently, actually, we started doing that. Like most of these sorts of games, it benefits from having somebody who's done it before. But, I mean, we had somebody who's never run a game uh, pick it up just to see, and all of his players told him that they wanted to come back. They really liked it. They wanted to see how it would end. <laughs> that was one of the ones where nobody made it out. If anything, it seems to uh, encourage them to come back. They want to see how it ends, and uh, I'm very encouraged by how it's been doing in, in different hands than mine. 
Is it purely theater of the mind? We've experimented with that a little bit. I prefer to keep it theater of the mind uh, because feeling anxious and feeling frightened is a big part of the game. And if I allow people to place a little plastic figurine and sort of channel everything through that, the, the events are happening to it, not to you. A much different experience to say, okay, your back is against the wall in a narrow hallway. You can't see anything, but you hear breathing on the other side of the wall versus, okay, let me draw it out on a marker on a dry erase or, you know, even with a, you know, something higher order than that, a pre-made board. Uh, okay, you're here and whatever you're afraid of is three spaces away. It, it helps people sort of distance themselves from the experience. That said, uh, I have run it the other way. Some people prefer it that way, uh, especially the, uh, I'm not sure the, fr- the phrase competitive is the right fit here, but uh, people who are in it to win it sometimes prefer the strategic flexibility of knowing exactly where they are and exactly where, you know, what they're dealing with is. Is there any other things that you do during a play session to give that sense of dread and ambiance? Absolutely. So Origins was an interesting challenge because we were in a, a wide open room with a lot of other games running in bright fluorescent lights. And the feeling of that game, you know, you still had those moments where people's eyes get wide, their jaws drop a little bit like, oh, that just happened. The, the game can run that way, but I've found it to be much more rewarding when you can get people together either late at night or at least in a dark place. Uh, if you have a music player nearby, uh, I mean, YouTube is filled with, with, uh, good ambiance. Uh, I'll put it that way. You don't have to look very far to find something that really sets the mood for you. I've asked the last two game creators I've had on, if you could run a game of this in any location in the world, where would it be? And you also get weather control. Hmm. Well, if we're assuming that I'm not bothered by cost, or anything like that, uh, I'd probably go looking for like an old Transylvanian castle. Stormy night, obviously. Now you mentioned running it in a few different settings. Are there pre-written campaigns for the GMs to run? Uh, absolutely, yeah. In fact, um, my personal playstyle relies a lot a lot on the writing, basically. I like storyline. I like putting a lot of descriptions in there. Uh, so many that generally it, you're not going to read them all in a session uh, because there are going to be times when your players just want to move on. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, right now we have four because I've made one every year since it got started. Uh, as the game accelerates, I will be writing more frequently. Uh, it's just a matter of... And of course, the the game, like like most Dungeons and Dragons style games, and that may not be a fair description, honestly. the The feel of it is so different, but I think you you understand what I mean. Uh, verbal storytelling games, tabletop RPGs, uh, like most of these games, there's a lot of room for the the game runner to be creative and to do their own thing. Uh, I kind of feel like my job will be to get the ball rolling. Say this is what you can do with the system. And uh, I'm very interested in providing people with plenty of one-shot scenarios, uh, especially given how much replay value they've had so far. What is it that gets you in the mood to start writing a new campaign? 
I would say that usually when it comes to writing anything, it's reading or, or otherwise absorbing media that does whatever it is that I find interesting well. So you see a movie, like a scary movie that's done something you've never seen before, you know, something maybe a little bit deeper than just these standard jump scares that can do it. Anything that really sets the mood for Halloween, honestly, though we've run the game all times a year now and it's, it's doing a, a pretty good job. So where do you start when you are wanting to create a new campaign? Oh, I absolutely start with them with the monster. It's not always doesn't always have to be a monster per se, but I start with the antagonist. I want to know what they're dealing with first and then build the environment to accentuate that thing. You know, if, if it's a solitary creature, maybe create a confined space where they can't easily get away from it. If, I, if it's a creature that recommends, say, a wide open space, something you might run into on a dark night out uh, on a camping trip or something. I haven't done this, but let's say you were running from Bigfoot. You, you would set it up in such a way that this thing is dangerous in the environment where you've placed it. And that usually depends on what that thing is. Do you find it's more difficult to write an antagonist or to write trying to imagine what your players will do when faced with the antagonist? Unlike a lot of games of this type where the story may depend on a certain sequence of events happening in a certain sequence, uh, Survive the Night's very sandboxy. As long as I don't throw things at them that are so dangerous that everyone must obligatorily die on the first encounter, I don't have to think too hard about what they'll do because the answers are usually fairly straightforward. So I'll, I'll definitely say that writing the antagonist is more challenging. People can surprise you, though, and that's part of the reason that we play test. I know of one game in particular where uh, a, certain uh, a certain combination of skills and group planning led to uh, hotwiring a car and uh, getting out of Dodge a, a little too fast for a satisfying end to the story. So, I, you know what? I guess I'll have to, to change my answer. It really depends on the situation. Is this game set up as a traditional D20 style? How does the game actually work? Survive the Night, everything is on a D6. We've experimented with other dice, and we've used D12s occasionally, just for, you know, it looks more intimidating, rolling at you from across the board. But overwhelmingly, I mean, D6 is all you need. You could run the whole game on a single D6 if you wanted to. I don't recommend it. I mean, everybody likes rolling their own die. But... Uh, essentially, character creation is pretty straightforward. Everybody gets uh, 10 points to start with. You pick a class. Each one of them has different strengths and weaknesses. Uh, they're all fairly, they're all archetypal. You know, here's the, uh, the ball player. Here's the bookworm. You've got the leader of the group, things like that. And then you sort of, you divide your points between skills, uh, stat bonuses, traits, and items. And pretty much everything in the game is going to give you a bonus. Usually it's plus one or plus two on a six, you know, on a D six, that's a pretty big deal. And, uh, you basically just apply whatever bonus is relevant to whatever you're trying to do. Normally a GM is having to worry about how their players will throw their planned narrative for a loop. But have you had issues where, your players through the system for a loop that you as a designer did not see coming. In the game's earlier stages, I mean, you would get questions that uh, 
I, I would get questions that I wasn't always prepared for, uh, such as, you know, can I just leave? And if you haven't equipped the antagonist with the tools to stop people from just walking away, that can be an issue. But that's all pretty, that, like, that's pretty early stuff. Uh, in general, I think the system is simple and flexible enough that it stands up to, so far, it stands up to virtually everything. As far as the narrative, I know that wasn't your exact question, but uh, as far as the narrative, I mean, like most horror movies, it's you're here, your job is to live, and this thing's here to, to you know stop you from succeeding. So, so far, I haven't had too much issue with the narrative or the system being thrown off. Inside sources suggest I ask you about a certain player named Danny. <laughs> uh, Danny's never played this game, though I've had him in a few other few other versions. Uh, the game whose rules were the foundation for this one. It was a the game I was mentioning earlier that I developed in high school. Uh, that was more of a Dungeons and Dragons for people who don't want to spend hours reading rules and uh, how to explain him. Danny is the most extreme person that I know in real life. And like most people, he really wants to let loose when he's playing in an RPG and just be, you know, much more daring and bold than he is in real life. As you might imagine, this leads to a dangerous magnifying effect, which uh, at turns has led to uh, throwing great swords at things over distance, despite being told by the game runner, you will almost certainly die in the next turn if you do this. To which I believe his answer was, but if I succeed, it'll be epic. He did not succeed, but he was right. It would have been epic. As a GM, do you think it's important for there to be impossible tasks for your players? I think for me, hard barriers are something that, that I rely on. I think it can be very useful. However, my usual rule of thumb, if your players come up with an innovative way to get around your immovable object that you didn't think of, it behooves you to uh, pursue, it behooves you to follow that line and see where it takes you. Can you recall any instances of the players getting around the immovable monster in Survive the Night that you didn't anticipate? There was one scenario that we were having a lot of trouble balancing. Uh, rather, I was having a lot of trouble balancing. Essentially, the monster had this, it, it operated on the same system that the characters did. Uh, it had, you know, hit points and, and attack bonuses and everything, as opposed to just being a uh, an unseen force that just kills people or, you know, depending on the situation. You can't really fight a curse, say. But if something is shambling at you from the shadows and you can fight it and uh, people happen to have brought a few more guns than I expected, that can happen. So, yes, uh, but it's, so far it's only been the one game. And uh, every time there's a hiccup like that, I learn from it and it gets less likely the next time. But, uh, you know, those games were still a lot of fun. Uh, I, still, I still think that you should follow it even if they find their way around it. Just see how it plays, and if you didn't, if it didn't go the way you wanted it to, uh, you know, now you now you know to look out for it next time. You said if the players brought more guns than you expected, what in the rule system allows them to surprise the GM like that? 
Essentially, the way Survive the Night is usually structured, and as players come back over and over again to replay the same games, this is less of a factor. But I find that people are more on edge when you have them create their characters before they know which scenario they're playing. And because something like guns, uh, there's only one character that can begin the game with one, the uh, Doomsday Prepper. His gun is not useful <laughs> against everything. It's, it's a good tool. But if you end up with more than one of them, or they make some really good rolls, uh, luck rolls or observation rolls, and they say, well, I just rolled a, with my bonuses, I just rolled a nine on a six-sided dice. Do I find anything useful in this place? And sometimes you just have to say, yeah, okay, you, you find what you were looking for. And if they were looking for extra shells or something like that, they can end up with the uh, not to be too on the nose, but more firepower than you thought they would. And if your bad guy had 50 life points and they just dealt 36 in one turn, it's going to be a short night. More than one of them being more than one gun or more than one person playing the same archetype? In this case, it would be more than one person playing the same archetype. Without giving too much away about the scenario, there were other ways to get firepower besides just a gun and, uh, if you make the challenge such that they require every single like advantage to even stand a chance, you're going to get a lot of uh, a lot of total party kills, which for Survive the Night wouldn't be horrible. But I usually don't run my games at that level of difficulty. I think there should be some room for error. But like I said, you know, you, you see that, and then you come back and you say, "All right, so the monster needs to be a little bit stronger, or there needs to be a, a barrier to a, to accumulating." So many uh, powerful weapons, things like that. Uh, and again, I mean, this is all playtesting. I mean, by the time these these games hit market, I'm going to play all of them. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of them are ready right now. But most of the stories you're going to hear are from earlier in the production. But uh, there's nothing we've run into so far that can't be fixed with a slight tweak. Is it designed with a certain number of players in mind? So far, all of our games have run between uh, five and nine, and I would say that uh, eight is probably our maximum. It gets a little crowded after that. Have you considered trying to balance for as low as one? I have considered uh, balancing it lower. Problem is, uh, every time I've run it, people uh, after the first game, which had most of the players from my core group, we have always had we've had a lot of people signing up, which is great, but it does kind of, since the game takes a while, it does limit our, uh, my access to, to time slots where I can do uh, the kind of experiment you're looking into. But that is a good, that's a good direction. Uh, now that you mention it, I think we'll, we'll look into that a little more deeply. Nowadays with gaming groups spread out as much as they are, have you been working on developing tools to allow people to run this game in an online setting? Not so far. Like I said, I definitely prefer personally, and uh, I've seen other people run it uh, more figures on a board. I personally prefer the uh, theater of the mind. And as long as you can do a conference call, you can, you can do that. Uh, I, well, yeah, yeah, you can do that. We haven't had to yet, but whether you trust the players to, to be honest about their roles or you just have the, the narrator doing the roles for everybody, 
There are also, I believe, uh, programs online where you can get randomized roles. And so I think all the tools are there for that. I haven't given it too much thought, maybe because it didn't strike me as a, as a dilemma, but as we move forward, I, I think that that is something that might be considered. Do you listen to any actual play podcasts currently? I do not. Uh, maybe a hole in my game. I don't know. I've heard uh, Matthew Mercer do a few games, and I've heard a few of your podcasts. But in general, I, I don't spend as much time internet crawling as I could. I was just going to see if if there was one person you could hand the game to to run, who would it be? Well, the only really uh, widely known DM that I know is Matthew Mercer. And sadly, part of the reason that I haven't been a player in, in more instances is because I don't have a, a lot of experienced DMs in my circles. I know a lot of people who will try different things, but they're all pretty uh, independent, creative types, and they, they have their own projects they want to run, which may or may not overlap with the stuff I'm interested in. So uh, I guess I will go with the uh, with the popular answer and go with Matthew Mercer. Do you think Survive the Night is a good game for somebody who is new to GMing? It's absolutely a good game for people who are new to playing. Most of the people we've been spreading it to, who, who we've been uh, inviting to these games, don't have a background. Uh, and it just doesn't seem to impact their enjoyment at all. I've had a lot of people come out who I was sure were going to be hard sells. And by the time it was over, they were just laughing with everybody else saying, man, we have to do this again. As far as GMing, I'm still not 100% on it. I think it'll be for the same reason that it's good for new players. I think it'll be good for new GMs because you've got a system that's very easy to understand. It's very easy to pick up. The only catch is that in normal games, uh, not normal games, but in uh, a lot of other games like this one, you will have the, the narrator, the DM, the GM, their role will be to help the characters, uh, they're setting hurdles in front of the characters, but in general, their job is to help the players live vicariously through their characters. And in Survive the Night, the narrator's job is to construct a challenge that is beatable, but not easily, and to wipe out most of the party. So I think that there's... I think that there are pitfalls to this game that you might not find in others, but in general, it is very friendly to new players. In a campaign setting for this game, is it designed with a single antagonist for each campaign, or can you mix and match antagonists from the different campaigns? We haven't tried it yet. Like I said before, in the in the scenario construction. The environment is usually designed to complement whatever the antagonist happens to be. Um, we've had a scenario or two where there were more than one antagonist, so it's not, you know, you're not always running from Freddy or Jason. But no, as far as mixing and matching, I would say it's less of a, so far anyway, I think that you, the system is very flexible. You could do a lot with it, but so far in the campaigns, uh, in the scenarios that we've run, we're not looking at an open world the way that you might be with something like Dungeons and Dragons, where these creatures exist in any corner of the globe and you can set the game wherever you want to. Usually it's 
we assume we live in a world that follows normal rules and here you've run into something that your character never thought he'd have to deal with. What kind of reading or viewing do you think a GM should do before running this game? The scenarios that have been written already have a good bit of supporting writing in them to prepare you for, for you know the the tone and the feel. But as I said, I mean that's take it or leave it. I mean I've I've seen I've run games that were very funny. Like the the subject matter was there's a lot of carnage, but everybody was having a good time. Sometimes that's the best route to go if you're going to be playing in a populated place where it's very difficult to set the mood. Um, but in general, I would just say make sure that you you know. Watch scary movies and know which ones you like. Maybe do a little bit of horror reading, too, just to get a feel for for what descriptive language you like. But I I have to say, I didn't go on like a rampage of research. Pretty much, uh, I was given, I was invited to a Halloween party one year, and most of the people who were attending were people who were a part of the group that I already, you know, part of my gaming group that I already had. And one of them just said, hey, man, you know, if you want to do... Uh, if you want to do something in the system, like just bring something for the game, then I run with a lot of nerds <laughs> and no complaints, but it was just recommended. Maybe, maybe I could bring some of the supplies and we could get a game going. I decided, all right. And I designed the first scenario over three days. It's really just drawing on the movies that I'd seen in the past and the stuff that I liked from before. So if you aren't somebody who likes horror stuff, I think you can still enjoy it as a player, but if you're going to run it, you you should know what kind of what kind of scares you like so you don't have to be well versed in the tropes of the horror genre don't have to be i i won't say that that won't uh, put more tools in your toolbox but no no i i don't i don't really think it's a necessity well just for funsies if a gm asked you which horror movie should i watch to best get a feel for the genre, which would you recommend? The genre of horror? Ah, uh, geez. There's a whole lot of those. And Survive the Night kind of runs the gamut. Pretty much anything is fair game. We've done a lot of We've touched on different themes with each game. My favorite horror movie is probably The Grudge. I realized that it was a shameless rip from the original Japanese version, Ju-On. Uh, but... I was introduced to it in the English version, fell in love with that movie. I've always been more for supernatural horror myself, though. Uh, I definitely understand the appeal of, uh, you know, the slasher flicks, but if there's not something I couldn't run into on a day, you know, during the day-to-day, then it might not be the first thing I'd recommend. Do you have a grudge-inspired antagonist in your system? Hmm. I do not. And maybe that's just not wanting to rehash the stuff that I'm really familiar with. We've definitely had uh, spiritual antagonists, and uh, in The Grudge, for those who haven't seen it, it is a, uh, I guess can best be described as a ghost slash curse of vengeance following people around. But uh, so far with the scenarios, I've tried to be original, tried to use uh, antagonists that people don't see too often. While The Grudge was definitely done very well, and it, it stood out. You know, ghost movies aren't too unusual. So, uh, sorry, that's a whole lot of words to say no. I don't have a grudge-inspired villain. 
Can you give us the list of antagonists you have so far? Hmm. I'll give I'll give you one because it's the the game reveals itself pretty quickly. It's not one of these where you have to figure it out later. Uh, one of the early games that I like to introduce people to is called the the Belford Dreamer. Essentially, party is on a road trip. They come in on a minivan. They find a bed and breakfast, and they spend the night. And a horrible uh, ritual is concluded while they're asleep. And over the course of the game, they realize that what has happened is someone has sacrificed uh, four people that were dear to him, uh, including himself, uh, to summon a being that has been asleep since the war in heaven. It has brought a host of uh, demonic spirits with it that have inhabited every let's call it um, non-used human body or human caricature in the town. And so they have to deal with what is essentially a, a horde of undead uh, who follow rules that I guess might be closer to what you see in uh, the Evil Dead movies, at least as far as difficult to deal with. They are not slow. They are intelligent. And uh, on top of everything else, as you go through the game, uh, this giant unseen thing, and all you know about it is that it has teeth, uh, is picking off the group one at a time. Are win conditions based on scenario or antagonist? The two often go hand in hand for me. I'm not sure uh, how I would answer the question, really. Uh, typically speaking, the only thing that you're really trying to do is survive the night, you know, per the game title. But in some cases, that's as easy as having the keys to the car uh, at a time when the villain is not close enough to you to stop you from getting to the car. Other times it's, no, you have to reverse the ritual or else this this demon is going to become a, an apocalyptic problem. So it's very sandboxy. People are permitted, you know, there's, there's really nothing that has to happen for a, a, the narrative to do what it's going to do. Uh, when conditions usually allow escape, that first game that I mentioned, uh, one of the few exceptions where you really pretty much, it does lay out for you what you have to do, but you do have to succeed in uh, conquering the, the creature. And are there lose conditions that aren't just all the characters die? There are lose conditions where the characters can die off screen. It's not unheard of to say, I'll use an example that's not quite on the nose, but something very similar has happened where uh, we're going to run into this easily defendable location and just bar the doors and sit here until it goes away. Okay, what if it never goes away? Then I guess we starve to death. Um, so not every death has to be played out, but usually surviving is the only thing that you're really trying to do. Luckily, since most uh, games do end in one night, you don't get too many of those. I'm thinking uh, loose condition, for example, they have to keep an artifact away from the antagonist that it could use as a power source, that type of thing. So far, we haven't, but there's no reason at all why that wouldn't fit in the game. If you were sitting next to a new GM who is running this game... What is the first bit of advice you would give them? 
don't start killing people until halfway through. You want everybody to get a f- to you want everybody to feel like they got to play. Is it the type of system where a GM can fudge the rolls? It really depends on how the the narrator wants to run the game. Generally, the scenario will tell you what the difficulty is if somebody's trying to pass a fear roll, which is one of the mechanics in the game where you can lose control of your character if they can't keep their cool. Since those aren't made public, there are situations where if a narrator says, or we can call it a GM, um, wants to, uh, I really don't want everybody to die right now. Okay, I'll lower the difficulty and that way some of the players will pass the roll. Uh, but I think that's pretty common to to most games I've encountered anyway. If you do have the uh, if you do have the one player, the GM representing the forces of the game, uh, there there are usually a lot of tools in their toolbox. What has been your favorite session of playtesting Survive the Night so far? Hmm. I'd say so far, and and I think my players will agree with this. It's still probably the first one. Because at that time, it had been done over a very short period of time. We didn't have high hopes for it. I mean, we didn't think we weren't going to have fun. But we'd never done anything like it before. Our previous sessions had been more in more along the lines of, of uh, classic D&D scenarios. And so I busted this thing out and said, okay, guys, you know, I cooked this up really fast. Um, it'll be a, one so- a one-shot session. And it just... The, the roles, the choices people made, it worked perfectly. Everybody came away from that game saying that that could just be a horror movie. We could just write that and, and sell that, and hopefully someone would pick it up. It, it went really well, better than I could have planned it. So first session, uh, in no small part because of what a surprise it was. What about the most challenging session? The most challenging session was the second one. <laughs> um, that was one where there was a, narr- uh, a narrative. And uh, while Survive the Night does not require you to unlock anything, uh, the, the group chose a... This is the one I referred to earlier where there was a loophole where you could get out early. And uh, I hadn't seen it beforehand. And so they decided to just take an extremely dangerous way out, knowing that it was the shortest route between point A and point B. I did every, you know, uh, you, you do what a, what a GM does. You try to, you know, encourage them to think it through. Like you're going to lose a lot of people, you know, maybe make an intelligence role, uh, to determine your, your character realizes how dangerous this is going to be. Uh, but there comes a point where, you know, you're not going to railroad them away from it. And so that was kind of challenging. Just realizing I need to find a balance between punishing them for being reckless, but also they're committed to this, to this road, uh, Am I going to kill everyone now? Uh, and they don't, they'll have no idea what was going on. Or do I say, okay, uh, this is a Hail Mary pass. Some of you make it out. So, you know, I apologize. I'm getting a little too contextual since nobody besides, uh, <laughs> since nobody listening was actually, uh, was actually there. But yeah, uh, challenging would be just unforeseen, un- unforeseen occurrences and uh, clever players finding a way around all of your challenges. Uh, is narrator the official title for the GM for Survive the Night? It is, and, and I've preferred that title for a long time um, for, for the other games I've run as well. For me, story is really important. Um, I definitely know a lot of people who love the nitty-gritty of combat, and uh, in one of my other games I've developed a much more involved combat system to accommodate that. But in general, for me, story is the main idea. And uh, as was pointed out, astutely by one of my players 
we have a, a real dearth of dungeons in my games. So Dungeon Master didn't seem to fit. So it's encompassing your philosophy on running the game as well. Yes, sir. We're going to start wrapping up, but before we do, I'm going to ask you some questions from the Pivo questionnaire, pioneered by Bernal Pivo. All right. What is your favorite word? Hmm. I do a lot of writing in my spare time, so there's a lot of words that I like. Uh, I was very fond of the word leaven, which is a, an archaic word for lightning, until a room full of uh, other writers with whom I, I share a critique group told me that none of them knew what it meant. At which point I realized that I had probably uh, discovered that word under very specific circumstances, and it was not common use. As far as every other word, this is going to sound a little morbid, but uh, I'd say die. It's it's uh, it obviously any any word concerned with death has a lot of evocative power, uh, both in speech and in writing. It's also a multi-purpose word, uh, at least phonetically. Anybody who likes these games, they are talking about rolling the dice all the time. And uh, I I do sometimes get very deep into the background for the uh, more fantasy-themed games that I run. And if, when you're trying to populate a town filled with realistic uh, artisans and such, having a, a town dyer was pretty common at certain points in medieval history. What is your least favorite word? I'm not a big fan of, of parsimonious or lugubrious. Any particular reason? They're long. Most people don't see any purpose in using them, and I don't think they sound all that good. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Well, uh, reading a good story or watching one, as the case may be, I think that's pretty common among people who, who do this sort of thing. Uh, I have been listening to uh, heavy music for a long time, and... Uh, Looking back, I realized that I've missed out on some very talented musicians. Uh, one of my one of my good buddies is a musician himself who is interested seemingly in all of the genres I'm I don't listen to. Um, but the right I mean the right song really can can hit a chord with you. And and I listen to a lot of Rush and Metallica, and my tastes are actually pretty soft by metalhead standards. But any song that's really powerful can can do it for me. Other than that, I spend a lot of time walking outdoors, and there's just something about nature. Even, I mean, you can be in a suburb, it doesn't matter. If there's a lot of trees, I'm happy. Can you remember the latest song outside of your typical genres that really got you? I'm trying to remember the name of this artist. There's a song called Oasis by... I think it's Tarja Tarunin that I find really uh, kind of mesmerizing. Definitely encourage people to give it a listen. What turns you off? Bad writing parading is good writing. Or at the very least, um, and this is certainly not the writing, this is not the fault of the writer or the work, but... 
stories that get more credit than I think they deserve. And sometimes with that, it can take me a long time to come around and say, actually, it's pretty good. It just irritated me that everybody thought it was great. And I just think it was good. So if I see a lot of that, especially if I don't have a choice about absorbing it, whether it was, you know, for a homework assignment or at someone's recommendation who lent me a DVD or something like that, that can be, that can be frustrating. Here's your chance to put someone on blast. Oh, <laughs> no, I, I'm not going to call anybody out on particular. They know who they are. Okay. Diplomatic. I can respect that. What is your favorite curse word to hear from your players? I think the three syllable shit is a solid one. Usually accompanied by uh, throwing the head back and just dropping the dice and giving up. When was the last time that you got that reaction? Uh, I'm pretty sure it was sometime. It was during one of my Survive the Night playthroughs. What sound or noise do you love? Strong wind through trees. Sort of thing you get before a storm. What sound or noise do you hate? I'd say nails on a chalkboard, things of that nature. What game system would you like to attempt? Hmm. It's a good question. I've been really satisfied with my own... Um, but I think that would be true for anybody. I mean, if you spend the time to, to make it, obviously you, you've made it to your own specifications and what you what you love. If I were to go out there and, and look for a system, uh, you know, let's say I was with a group that only wanted to do a specific system and they wanted me to run a game, it would probably be another one of these uh, theater of the mind games. I briefly was, I, I was taken through a very brief campaign in, um, uh, what was it called? Oh, geez, it was one of those White Wolf games. It was like Vampire the Masquerade or something. I was going to say, if it's White Wolf, it's Blank the Blank. <laughs> yeah, I, I really I really like Gothic Horror. I'm not sure that I would want to do it in that, uh, you know, I've got Survive the Night and everything. Completely different feels, if we're being honest. But um, I don't know that I'd want to do it in that sort of effete vampire universe they have over there. But just a, a game that focused more on story than hurling dice at each other. What game system would you not like to attempt? Uh, fourth edition D&D. &D. I've heard some of your podcasts. I've heard people make compelling arguments in its favor. I'm, I know a guy who had a ton of fun running a game. Uh, more power to those people, but 4th edition D&D seemed to be everything that I don't look for in an RPG, and really uh, kind of lower on everything that I do look for. I mean, the game system you would like to attempt would be Theater of the Mind, so fair enough. 4th edition seems to be the antithesis of that. Yep. <laughs> My thoughts exactly. I, I played it a few times. Um, and it, it, it wasn't like, I liked the people I was playing with, but the system just didn't jive for me. When your game concludes, what would you like to hear from your players? I've been really fortunate to get, uh, the same reaction in almost every game, which is that was great. 
that was scary. When can we play again? And lastly, if you could travel back in time to watch one person sneeze, who would it be? Hmm. I feel like I'm taking too long, spending too much time thinking about this question. It's a very important question. No, I believe that. Hmm. I think I would watch George Washington sneeze. Just on that outside chance that the wooden teeth come out. Is there anywhere the insiders can follow you or find out more about you? Absolutely. And like I said, the game's been growing pretty fast, but we we don't have a digital footprint yet. Uh, we're looking into the logistics of putting up a website and everything. But in the meantime, anybody who's got any questions about the game, uh, when and where we'll be running the next session, uh, or, or just the how it's been coming along, you can send an email to uh, survivethenightgames at gmail.com. Uh, and uh, depending on how many people do that, since this is the first time I'm plugging that email, uh, you can expect a fairly quick response back. Thanks for joining us in the studio today. Absolutely, Eric. Thanks for having me. You can follow this show on Twitter at ITMS underscore podcast, or you can send us an email inside the master's studio at gmail.com. Inside the master's studio is an audio entropy original. Head over to audioentropy.com for more podcasts. Our latest editions are Skies of Academia. On Skies of Academia, Dustin recruits a party of friends to dive deep into a specific aspect of game mechanics, storytelling, or culture to gain a better understanding of how we interact with our entertainment. The Book of Medora. Every two weeks, Cameron and Crystal come together to explain the lore of the Legend of Zelda games, one game at a time. So far, they have Breath of the Wild as Episode 1, and The Hyrule Fantasy as Episode 2. We also have D-Comedy. Join siblings Emma and Lucas, plus even the occasional guest, as they undertake a quest together to take deep dives into every single Disney Channel original movie. Come along with us for one episode a month, plus some bonus episodes here and there, as we bear witness to the kind of chaos that probably has old Walt rolling in his grave. I am assuming his head is rolling separately in its cryo chamber. I've been your host, Moon Rules, and remember, if you're trying to run a game but you can't find a system that fits your needs, just make your own. Love writing the backstory for your tabletop game characters just as much as the adventure? Ooh, yes I do. How about creating fun, kick-ass, and inclusive characters? Oh, I like that. If you answered yes, then check out All My Fantasy Children, a tabletop character creation podcast hosted by me, Aaron Catano, and my best friend, Jeff Stormer. How cute. Together, 
With our powers combined, we create a new character every single week with the help of listener-submitted prompts and a variety of cool tabletop games. But where can I find it? Find all my fantasy children on SoundCloud, iTunes, Android Play, and on Twitter at AMFC underscore podcast.